0: You remember the scene in Jurassic Park where the blood-sucking lawyer runs into the toilet to hide from the recently escaped T-Rex, only to get torn apart like a fresh burrata moments later? Well, that's precisely how I, and most of the men in my life, dealt with mental illness. Run away, surround ourselves with a flimsy wooden shack of protection, and have it destroyed by the very thing we were running from. Dinosaurs may be dangerous, but your mental health is a stealthier and sneakier little sausage. Trust me, remaining very still is quite honestly the shittest option for dealing with it. And I learnt that the hard way. Campfire was created so that men everywhere no longer have to suffer in silence. And we can feel confident to reach out when we're feeling like we're getting relentlessly fucked by that little thing called life. The recipe is simple. Big, bold, ballsy conversations with brave, brilliant bros. Vulnerable as fuck, with no apology or awkwardness. Campfire is about tapping into what really makes us tick. So, strap in, sit back, and get ready for some chats that aim to redefine what it means to be a man in 2021. Let's get it! Again. Good morning, good evening, and good day, my dudes. We're back. Again. Another exciting week behind us, and another one ahead. What better way to tackle what's happened and what's to come than with a delicious delve into men and their courageous conversations. This week, we're hashtag blessed to be joined by someone that looks at mental health for a living. That is Mr Mark Butler. Here are the Mark Facts. Mark is a man. Mark is a man from the Emerald Isle. Mark is also a man with many many strings to his bow as you will soon discover. As an expert facilitator and coach, for 25 years Mark has worked with individuals and teams to help develop sustainable and effective work practices. He is passionate about developing high-performing teams and promoting workplace well-being and resilience. Mark's gravitas is further bolstered by the fact he is also an accredited clinical psychotherapist with 12 years' experience in the field, with a focus on mindset and mental well-being at work, mentoring people through adverse issues around workplace burnout, stress, anxiety and related unhealthy coping strategies. Before we had our ramble chat, I was aware that Mark's interests lay in understanding the levels of work-related stress and burnout that teams face and the issues that can develop under challenging conditions. His knowledge and expertise has underpinned his drive and passion for pursuing effective recovery and resilience programs to get team members back on track and performing at their optimum level. Much of this, of course, we'll cover off in our waffle. So, without further ado, tell your loved ones you're busy, take a stroll, lie down, hide away, or just find your happy place. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce my next guest... Mr. Mark Butler.
1: So the audio was still on. You were probably terrified I was about to go in and take a piss or something, were you?
0: Mark, if you did, it would be a good way for us to bond.
1: <laughs> There's probably better ways.
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's maybe have it. Yeah, let's get to know each other first. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be hideous. <sighs> So listen, I just stick that there. It just hides a bunch of mortal sins that you don't is, really need to be bothering looking at.
0: Uh, that's that's all right. quite all right. Hey, don't worry. This is there's no pressure here. I got really terrible eyesight, so I won't be able to. <laughs> going on in the background. Anyway. How are you,
1: sir? It's Welcome to Campfire Conversations. Thank you very much. Let me know when we start um, recording.
0: Oh, look. I mean, we've already we? started, but. There's no formal introduction. There's no, you don't need to worry about that. Excellent. The whole point of this is to, as my, uh, as Campfire has said from the very start of its inception, the whole idea is just to Mm. have as brave a conversation as we can possibly have to discuss men's mental health, the lack thereof of, you know, awareness and, also, just sure. normalize conversations about mental health to make sure that it doesn't feel weird when we talk about how we feel. It doesn't feel weird to talk about vulnerability. doesn't feel weird to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that I, when I read your passage in the book that I'm sure we'll touch upon, Um, yep. I really rang true with everything that I'm trying to achieve with the brand. And I think having now... Uh, well, I'll I'll let you talk more about what you you talk about in the book, but I think there were certain parts that really resonated, and they resonated a lot more given the experience that I'd been through myself last year with um, an employer and the COVID nineteen. Uh, you may have heard of it, COVID nineteen yeah. pandemic. Yeah. So, um, I guess, yeah. I mean, first of all, hello, nice to meet you. Uh, it's, hi, it's, nice I, to meet you, Rob. It's kind of bizarre. Carl knows all these amazing people. And uh, you yeah. <laughs> casually slipped into conversation uh, a few weeks ago. And then he invited me over for a cheeky coffee at the yep. Aston Gardens Chateau, which I can see from my bedroom window right now. And lovely, lovely. casually mentioned that, you know, we should perhaps connect. And he'd go past yeah. on, your, on your book. and And now we find each other on a zoom chat how
1: wonderful and here, we are. here we uh, yeah, are yeah exactly right and here we are
0: so i it's guess not, to, tell yeah. me tell me a little bit about yourself give me a little bit of background i know i've, I've obviously done my research but for the purposes sure. of uh this waffle
1: for the, <laughs> for the purposes for the purposes of the waffle um uh mark butler is my name i have be, i am a uh what they call a mental health strategist I'm a clinical specialist and I help organizations and particularly leaders to uh, normalize the conversation around mental health so that uh, we can demystify it and it's not as either a taboo taboo or indeed a a scary conversation that people are quite often afraid of. Um, In the the business space, about 50% of leaders will say, uh, privately, usually that they either feel uncertain or unsure or incapable of having a conversation with their people around mental health, even when they see it and there are some industries that will be worse than others and and that tend to be the male dominated ones construction first responders mm. um Even when they see something wrong, they don't want to pry or they feel like it's none of my business or, or, you know, I don't want to pull on this thread because I don't know where it's going to end and, you know, what's my responsibility if I do start the conversation? And those sorts of things, and I don't know what to say. And, you know, those sorts Mm. of uh, issues are enough to stop somebody from speaking up, stop to stop a leader from reaching out and checking in with their people. But even doubly so, If an individual in the workplace feels that their boss isn't going to be approachable, they're going to clam up as well, right? Now, it's hard enough to talk about our mental health when we're in a stable sort of place. I do it for a living. I'm fine. Um, But a lot of people are slow to speak about it. Now, so when you can imagine when you're actually in a heightened or distressed state, it makes it even harder again because it makes us vulnerable you know, and, and what we're doing is is we're declaring to our tribe or our pack that I'm not at my best and um, that we run the risk then of being sort of spurned in some way by our pack or kicked out of the nest or abandoned or rejected or whatever kind of language you want to put around it, but, but be made to feel less than and, and not part of the team. And that's a survival instinct for us. So of course we're going to uh, we're going to resist ever sort of putting ourselves in that position unless we're absolutely sure that we're going to be safe. And, you know, feeling safe around other people is, is I think, the primary. I think uh, a guy called Basil, uh, Bessel van der Kock, who is an expert in in trauma and, and how it lives in the body, wrote a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, which is a fabulous book, if anybody's feeling traumatized, because it drills down into you know we can't outthink or outsmart this. It's in the body. you know if you have a panic attack and you're trembling and you're sweating and you don't know what's triggered you, that's a body that's a bodily response, yeah, well, it's a fight or flight response but but um, his line is uh, that feeling safe around others is probably the primary uh, facet to, be, to think about when we're talking about mental health. And, uh, you know, the media has, has not done any favors to the mental health uh, space. Uh, when we talk about, uh, when they talk about people with substance use issues, as an example, uh, that's the space I work in a lot of the time. And people with a substance abuse issue, to me, it's not about the substance. It's not the alcohol that's the problem. It's the trauma. It's what the alcohol is doing for somebody to um, help them to cope. And then they sort of lose sort of track of it, if you like, and lose control over it. But, but it, it starts and ends with the trauma that somebody is trying to cope with. And we all have it, you know? Um, so... Yeah. Does that is that's a really roundabout way of answering your question, is it? Or did they even answer it?
0: Well, there was a lot there was a lot that you said. Um yeah. I guess I guess what I'd be interested to know is how what brought you to the point of of uh, if you can talk a bit little bit about my sort of introduction to you and the uh yes. the book that I have right in front of me. Uh what the hell do, what the we, hell do? do we do now? The yeah, enterprise guide to COVID nineteen and beyond. Because I think to to give this some context i think that it's it's obviously a really timely and pertinent book and last year was the first time that people for a long long time actually gave real consideration and real focus to mental health and it was forced upon them now in the same way that when i injured my back it was forced mm. upon me to be more reflective to be more and and to completely overhaul the way in which I behaved and I interacted with people. And, you know, I talk to my psychologist about this a lot. Like I see sort of the last two years as a bit of a, almost like uh, an Uno reset card, you know? Like, it's like I played that card yeah. and it actually gave me so much more clarity on the th- the things I valued, the th- the type of person that mm-hmm. I wanted to be. And I think that in a in a really weird way, I went through that a year early and then 19 right. happened and I was equipped to deal with everything that was going on because I had spent a year basically self-isolating, being on my own, trapped by my own thoughts. So when it came to, oh, you know, we need to do something that's for other people, I was like yeah cool i can do that no problem Right. Right, talk to me about how you came to the project tell me a little bit about and there's 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 sort of there's some themes that i wouldn't mind you just elaborating on just for people listening um sure these ideas of support stigma and or at least this is what i took away from it strategy
1: right okay um I suppose where I started heading off there a few minutes ago was talking around the stigma that people feel as a result of uh, mental health issues that they experience Um, and mental health as an issue was in the conversation uh, in the business world, which is where I spend most of my time now. the, the, the conversation had begun, but in, in, in many cases it was just ticking boxes to ensure that we were seen to be doing the right thing. Um and it wasn't given the sort of level of credence that it should have been receiving until COVID hit. And um then then we did realise, hang on, people are stuck, they're isolating just like you were. They're uh this is an alien environment for them. And uh, we need—we really need to look out for our people. We don't know what's going to happen here. The level of uncertainty and unsurety is is uh, overwhelming for some people. And um, I came from a place uh, where I—I've I've been the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, if, if I was—if I could use that analogy. And actually, that—that that phrase. Uh, I didn't know at the time when I started saying it, but that that phrase comes from a a poem from 1895 by a guy called John Maynes. And he says, better uh, a fence round the top of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley, (laughs) which is a a great line. And and because that's where I felt I was. I was was in a place where I was reacting to people who were already overwhelmed. And I thought, Mm. how can we get in front of this? And, and uh, as long as people feel stigmatized and feel like they're, you know, they're strange or they're weird or they're less than or they're failing in some way or they're not a team player, people will be slow to reach out and seek help because they're just unsure if they'll be received or not. And so my journey has been around uh, supporting people to feel safe to lean in and ask for help if they need it and i have to then, we have to then support business leaders to be able to have that conversation and to recognize the subtle things that, that are sort of not necessarily all that obvious but could give you a bit of a flag that somebody is maybe not traveling that well and and we started to see that it, it, with the isolation people had and on zoom sessions etc we saw that people were starting to pick up each other's, uh, you know, they're starting to notice little things somebody might not be doing so well. Um, and so the conversation that should have been happening all along started to happen, and, and I think continues to now. So so when we talk about support, you have to support individuals to feel safe to to reach out for help when they need to and not feel like they're going to be judged or victimized from it. And we have to support leaders in all facets of life and that could be a football coach like you know for for kids it could be anybody who's in a position where they're in connection and contact with others to feel comfortable enough and safe enough to be able to have that conversation because it feels unsure for so many. Just to
0: uh, dig into that a little bit I think that for people that have obviously you have an enormous wealth of experience. Um, Mm. You you are doing this day in, day out. I myself have obviously been through quite a traumatic event and I've spent a lot of time, it took me a long time to recognize how important it was to have conversations, Mm. to facilitate conversations, to be a better listener. I wonder yep. if you could just tell me a little bit about perhaps some of those techniques that you are passing on, or perhaps some of the the ways and methods that you found that in order for people to facilitate those conversations and for sure. those leaders in industry to yep. feel comfortable to have them as well. Sure.
1: Well, I think uh the the main thing that that prevents um People leaders, uh, and as I said earlier on, uh, about fifty percent will will say that they feel unsure, unsafe, incapable, uncertain about having the conversation. Is because, it, say, in a leadership position, um, we, there's an expectation that as a leader, I must have the answer to a question I'm being asked, and that's you know this is one of those rare occasions when actually you're not expected to have the answer so uh, the first uh, sort of step is to try and make leaders uh feel comfortable that they don't need to rescue or save anybody that's of primary importance in fact it's quite the opposite that's not your role it's not Mm -hmm. your job you're not qualified to do it and and anyway even if you do come up with some idea and i'll give like an example somebody comes to their leader and says that they're You know, they've got uh, their anxiety is getting worse and they're finding themselves unable to meet deadlines or to do their job or whatever. Um, A leader can sometimes be tempted to say, right, here's what we'll do. I'll take your workload off you and I'll pass it to somebody else in the team until you feel like you're, you're more on top of things. And, and take a week off and, and sort of get your sleep back in pattern, sleep patterns back in action and, and, you know, get some rest and go see your GP and all of these things. Right. And um, the thing is, by the time somebody comes to you with an issue like their anxiety or their depression, they will have tried everything that you as a leader will think of. Right, they've tried everything, and they're coming to you saying, "You know, I'm I'm still struggling. I've had my week off, or I'm you know I'm I'm trying to get some sleep, or whatever it is." And uh, they identify perhaps by their jobs, so taking their work off them is is not necessarily going to be the res- resolution for them as well. So, l- what I say to to people all the time is, "There's." There's, there's, a, um, there's a theory, there's a number of theories actually around uh, the likelihood of somebody recovering from a mental uh, health issue. And uh, they talk about the common factors. What are the common factors in that journey for somebody recovering? And um, mm-hmm. this is easier to see visually if you were looking at a pie chart. But if you can imagine one in your head and we'll say, no, slice off 40 percent of that pie chart and the likelihood or efficacy of somebody uh, recovering from an issue. 40% of the likelihood is based on the support that they get around them, so from the community, whatever their community is, their workplace, their friends, family, um, the people people that are closest to them. If they're getting a level of support from them, um, which would be non-judgmental, you'd like to think, um, they're 40% of the way there to getting better. The next, uh, take then another 30% of that pie chart and say that represents the sense of hope that somebody has that they can get better. And of course, that sense of hope is going to be based on, to some degree, the 40% support that they've got from people around them, encouraging them, holding them where they're at, etc. So they've got some sense that this isn't futile and, and you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So now you've got 70% of their likelihood of getting better. That leaves 30%. And and that final 30%, you can cut in two and say 15% of the likelihood of recovery is based on the therapeutic relationship that they develop with their GP or their psychologist or psychiatrist or social worker or whoever it is. And and that person has an influence on their sense of hope. So you can see these aren't defined lines. They sort of bleed into each other. But and the final fifteen percent just comes down to around their uh, treatment modality, whether it's on medication and talk therapy, or it's you know whatever sort of combination of treatments they get. But to go back up to that forty percent and thirty percent in in their sense of hope and community support, a leader of of any shape or form um, can have a really solid influence on 70% of the likelihood of somebody getting better before we've even introduced any kind of recovery or treatment or therapy or clinician or anything like that. So you can see um, a a business leader uh, working with a team and somebody there is struggling. That business leader, he or she, can have a huge influence on the likelihood of this person recovering. And they're not actually saving anyone. They're not rescuing anyone. So now we get to, well, what did they say and how did they say it? And quite simply, we ask, what can we do to help? Because at the end of the day, we need to empower this person in their own recovery, right? They need to have some say in what's happening. Otherwise, they'll just collapse into it and and they won't have that 40% sense of support or indeed the sense of hope. So we encourage people to uh, take part in their own recovery, um We support them as best we can and facilitate it where we can as far as the business allows and that's important because we can't just you know drop everything at the end of the day there's still a business to be run, et cetera so these are the sorts of conversations that I will have when i 'm training people, and then we get down into the conversation about how do you actually have the conversation with them and uh, there's a very big difference between me saying, Rob. I've, I've noticed in recent days that you, know, you you you're not sort of joining the rest of us for coffee in morning tea or or I'm a little concerned because you've gone I've noticed that you're very quiet in meetings and I just wanted to check in is everything okay um or how are you doing right so that opens up a space for, for me to say like so what I'm saying there is this isn't a performance conversation this is Mark just checking in with Rob to see how he's doing um, which is very different to, you've been a bit quiet lately, you know, or or sort of almost wagging my finger at Rob, sort of saying, you know, you pull up your socks, man. You're not being a team player at the moment. What's going on? What's happening for you? You're going to go on the defensive, aren't you, Rob? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I'm sat here nodding and smiling, Mark, because
1: it, it, it rings it a bell, does through. it? yes, very <laughs> much. Yeah, very much. <laughs> yeah, isn't it awful? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, businesses do, um, they've done, look, I, I, I live in a world where I think every HR and people and culture um, leader and manager is doing everything in their power to support their people as best they can. But when you've got the business uh, leaders unsure about what to say and do, their their sort of go-to position is, oh, go see HR about that or ring our employee assistance program. Or we might have a mental health first aid person in the business and go and see them. But all of these responses and reactions are after the issue has already occurred. And somebody's kind of come to the end of the line. They don't know where else to turn or what else to do. So they start reaching out, looking for some help. Yeah. Um, We just got to get better at getting in beforehand. And it's not HR's job anyway to rescue somebody like that or to jump in, but people seem to think it is. It, it never was. Mm. It's not a HRO. You know, they're not chaplains and counsellors. It, it, the responsibility lies with the person who is leading the team, it, at least in the first instance. But then, you know, they're not, they're not counsellors, they're not chaplains, and they're not heroes and rescuers either. It's simply creating a space where their people feel safe, safe enough with other people to be able to ask for some, some help. And if I can just say one more thing, um Mark, you've got the floor It's all yours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you i'm going to just sit here and soak all this in like i say it's, all right, it's okay. kind of, okay. i'll I'll tell you more about it in a moment, but it's just all quite, right. it's quite alarming what you're saying and how 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 much it resonates
1: okay, okay, good. Well, this is going to resonate, I reckon with you um there's a There's a chap called Dr. Patrick Magari. you may have heard of him. He was Australian of the Year about five or six years ago. I think it was. It might even be longer now. And um, I love the guy. Uh, he has done so much for youth uh, mental health um, in Australia. Um, really, really solid guy. And uh, he was asked recently uh, what he felt people should know about mental health. And I love this saying. He said... Um, well what you should know is that it can and probably will happen to you and will definitely happen or already has to someone close to you now when you think about that it's right next to all of us mm. so when when and, and yet somehow we're still unsure and unsafe and uncertain of what to say to somebody if we think that they're struggling you know, and now we have, are you okay, Dave, which look, I think is great. I would hate to think where we'd be if we didn't, but it's, and it should be, are you not, not every once a year, it should be all the time. And and probably a better question is how are you doing? You know, even use a suds like a scale, Look like on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling today? Or how are you traveling this week? Or just, it's an open question. Are you okay? As a question. And the are you okay people themselves will say this. That it's not an ideal question. It, it's a great starter when we started. But, the, the you know, the knee-jerk responsible is, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. You know? Uh, it kind of, it's a closed sort of a question, you know? I found that um, the way for me into
0: that when asking other people, because like you say, there tends to be a, a bunch of people who will be receptive to that question and a bunch of people hmm. who will give you the... Basically, the the British response, which is nope, I'm fine. Yeah. The, the way I approach that, is the, yeah, it's yeah. almost look at it like a barometer. You know, like uh, how's the weather in your world today? You know, position yeah. it in a different way, just to yeah. sort of. It sort of disarms that whole question of yeah, like I'm checking in on you, but in a way that doesn't suggest that I'm being fussy or fastidious about how you are.
1: Yeah. No, to my shame, I can't remember the name of the person, but um, she she's been running a program for um, in the rural space for farmers, um, and and uh, um, God, I, sorry, I can't think of her name. We find it, but in fact, all you have to Google is is the phrase "Are you bogged, mate?" B o g g e d. Are you bogged? And it came about. She was getting people to. Uh, post pictures of their farm equipment just stuck in mud, etc. And okay. that's where it came from. So are you bogged Was is her way of reaching out. That's a kind of like a code to going, you know, how are you? Are you yeah. bogged, mate? Yeah. Yeah, but, okay. it, you know, again, in itself, it's a slightly closed question, but it, it just smooths the way and it makes it easier. But because have, the, the issues in the rural space are, are phenomenal. I mean, we've got the highest youth suicide rate in the world and the bulk of that's happening in rural areas, oh, wow. you know. Uh, yeah, so we want to talk isolation. Well,
0: yeah, our our figures for suicide in amongst men in this country are off the scale, like terrifying numbers. But I think yeah. that that's that's precisely it. Like, whilst yes, so, so to a certain degree, those questions might be, you know, closed off or might might facilitate mm-hmm. a a closed off answer. I think yeah. that where we're at at the moment is like when you were talking about how the proximity of mental health can be so close and yet we still find it so difficult to talk about yeah that is terrifying that that's that's the case especially given that we have i mean you do a quick search for mental health resources there, there is i was blown away when i first started mm. campfire and i was looking through yeah. okay well what 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 mental health resources are there I didn't realise like just how much support there was. And yet mm. when I was going through my mental illness, like I I was genuinely like, I'm doing this on my own. Nobody cares.
1: <laughs> there's nothing out there. Yeah. Help yeah. me, God. Yeah, I'm all alone. I'm all alone in that's this. It. And if that's that's um, you know, there's stigma, there's shame, there's vulnerability there's a number of reasons why we we will retreat into ourselves uh, and it takes a a, a courage and maybe a bit of experience in order to reach out. I'm at the stage where I would reach out now. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I had my own sort of, you know, anxiety, depression journey from about the age of 10 or 11, something like that. Um, You know, so it's okay for me and it's normal now. And the conversation has been normalized. You know, uh, it always was in our house. my mother, was a director at the Samaritans which is the sort of Irish equivalent of Lifeline and she was there for 26 years or something like that. Uh, you're supposed to do three or four years and 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 sort of take some time out but uh, she she kind of stuck with it. So well used to the conversation in her household so it was okay mm. for me. But I can see where yeah uh, some people could struggle very much in reaching out but um, just to go back to that, that sort of business environment again, I often say when I'm talking to people, groups of leaders, I say, in the workplace, one in four will experience or already are experiencing a mental health issue this year. Now, you can go to the so IT industries one in three, finance is one in three, some of the some of the at risk um organisations are, are one in three will will experience that. Uh, some the general population stat, I think, now is one in five. It used to be one in four. So it just depends on how they measure it. But I will say to people in that space, I say, okay, just look at the three people closest to you. Statistically, one of the four of you is struggling with a mental health issue right now. If the three of them look okay, well, then statistically, you're the one with the problem or the issue. And if you're adamant, you're okay, well then one of them is hiding it really, really well. And now we have to ask ourselves, why do we think they're hiding it? And aren't they really, really good if you can't pick it? You know, if we can't recognize it, because we're just not used to looking for it. Or they feel that it's unsafe to actually reach out and, and say it, or ask for help. Yeah? Uh, could, it is, it's The the whole stigma around,
0: I mean, I was, I hadn't watched it because I didn't want to get too swept up in the, it's a little bit culty now, but Brené Brown's been obviously uh, very popular over the last 18 months, two years. And I finally sat down and watched her Netflix special the other day. And I was trying to ignore it, trying to be like, Oh, you know, I'm just going to do my work and have it on in the background. And she said something uh, about like you you just can't be you can't show your strength without be, being vulnerable. And I was like, damn, mm. that is so true. Like she said that she gave this example of a gentleman who'd said, um, you know, I come, I you know, I, I talk about vulnerability and strength, and he goes, oh, the opposite ends of the spectrum. And she was like, well, no, they go hand in hand. <laughs> like yeah, you know, yeah, one without the other. And I find I just fight like I'm sat here and I I just I, I'll tell you sort of why it's resonating so much for me in terms of yeah. employer and employee relationship is last year. I was in a particularly um, toxic relationship with a manager of mine Right. and it did. And you know, all these, all these phrases that you're using, like it, it shouldn't take getting to the end of your wick to have mm. those, you know, and then to be like, this is awful. Throw, throw the cards in the air, walk out the yeah. door. But I had had to do that in the end because it didn't. There was there was no avenue for me to be like, look, there are some things going on in the background and have been going on in the background for a long time, and I need you to have some empathy for my situation. It just was like I just have to walk away from this before something is said or something is done that we would probably both uh, regret. Can come back from, yeah, exactly. And thankfully, that just that action set me on this path of creating Campfire, of now. And the reason that I love everything that you're saying is that I was gifted. It was like winning the lottery of employers. Mm. Like I quickly, like within the space of three weeks of of packing in the old job, I found this wonderful employer, like the two owners of the business. God, I hope they don't listen to this. The two owners of the (laughs) business are the most caring, empathetic, Altruistic people I've ever met. Like, not only are they great humans, but they are they are brilliant businessmen. Like, they are and they they are. I'm like a sponge for them both. They're just like constantly absorbing. And what makes it so good is that I'd had all these experiences where it had been like, I, you know, I I need that mentor. I need I need you to mentor me. And you know, like I might be in mid thirties, but that process of learning I really admire and I really appreciate and I need you to understand that yeah like I've been through some shit recently or you know within the past 18 months it would be lovely if you understood that that's what I didn't get from the old employer but um, the the two guys I work for now they are just it's it's the dream scenario you know they fully understand where I'm at and it would like
1: I hope they do hear this
0: well Nathan my boss, he is very well aware that I talk about him in such high regard when I go and see my therapist. Like I I talk Mm. about him openly because although he provides a very, you know, like a great working environment, he's very like in terms of our understanding and our relationship in the work environment, we get each other and and we produce great work, but it's everything outside of that that he he gives you you know um and and the same with craig as well like i I just have a a closer working relationship with nathan and the relationship that i've nurtured and developed with nathan outside of work as well provides so much value it's it's untrue and so that's why like i'm like i i know how bad it can be and 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 that in order for people to you know it's not everyone's gonna luck out and have like just deeply caring bosses but you do need to Mm. have those conversations and for you know I I guess to sort of anyone that is in that position of ownership of a business or is in a managerial position take some leaves out of their book you know like that I know it's difficult and I wanted to ask you actually yeah what are your thoughts around because I went and did a a lot of what you've said really rang true because I went and did a mental health first aid course yeah, like how important is that for employers
1: and employees? I I think it uh, I think it's a wonderful thing to have if you've got first aid people in your organization and you should yeah you should have mental health first aid people in your organization, um, and, and it's not an either or. I think it's an as well as, um, but. Mental health first aid people uh, generally are approached when the issue is sort of overwhelming again, and and where I love to see us get to is where um, leaders in an organisation, and not just managers, but people who are you know who are considered. Um, type of people you know you can be you can, every manager should be a leader but every leader doesn't have to be a manager if you get you mm-hmm. know the, the sort of subtle difference there um, and it's people who others in, in the organisation will look up to if if people like that have the ability and and lack the sort of reticence if they see something to just quietly and gently inquire as to how somebody is doing um, I, I you know you can resolve issues before they get to that sort of point of of being almost overwhelming and there's aside from it being the ethical and right and moral thing to do to be able to have that conversation it makes very good business sense as well to the earlier that we address issues in the workplace the the, the better the result from it uh, the better recovery for the person the better for the business you know reducing presenteeism etc and absenteeism, like uh, like everybody knows what absenteeism is, but a lot of people don't know about presenteeism. And essentially, what that is, is people are turning up to work, but they're not really uh, giving their all. And in fact, healthy people will will deliver three times the productivity of of unhealthy people. So, um, and and if they're hiding their issues then they're not going to be as productive and and everything any kpi that a a business or a leader is measured by there's a direct line between the mental health of your team and that result so we're talking productivity profitability revenue um uh, performance uh as i say presenteeism uh, absenteeism you name it everything gets affected by the effectiveness of your people so the sooner that we can uh, address issues as we see them arising and the sooner we understand them the better result it's going to be for everybody and and as we've spoken as to how prevalent it is it's a bit like it's a bit like people coming to work and I you know I, I wear reading glasses can you imagine if I had to hide the, the fact that I have to wear reading glasses to read the computer because I didn't want anyone to know Mm. but it's as prevalent as that right mental health issues are as prevalent as people needing reading glasses it's about the same um but somehow one's okay and the other one isn't yeah, yeah. It's you know what remarkable. i
0: mean it's remarkable isn't
1: it yeah and 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 that's the other thing you, you you talked about sort of on a scale or on a spectrum of how somebody was feeling you know um and i mentioned it as well actually when we when we think about our physical health and And, if you had sort of a spectrum from you know one to hundred, let's just call it that right? a scale, we can pretty much pinpoint where on that scale our physical health is, right? and And we can say, you know i'm I'm sixty at the moment or something like that. Um, and it remains relatively static, but most of us are doing something to at least maintain where we are on that scale, mm. uh, if not improve it. Um, and the only t- and and it remains relatively static unless you're putting in serious effort to improve it. The only time it changes is if something acute happens. You know, you get a flu or you break a leg or catch COVID, God forbid. You 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 can sort of see where you are on that scale. But when we think about mental health, we tend to think of it as being either on or off. It's there or it's not. Mm. But in actual fact. It lives on a, a, an identical spectrum. Actually, it lives on the same spectrum, I think, as your physical health. But it fluctuates so wildly over the course even of a day for some people that to try and pinpoint where you're at on it, it, it is, you know, it's a chasing your tail a little bit. But it is as prevalent, and we need to consider the two of them at the same time when we, when we uh, think about our health. We need to think about our physical health, but we also need to think about where our mental health is and, and be able to gauge it and know what to do when we see it sort of dropping. Um, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention um, came out with a statistic recently, and they said at any given time, 17% of the population is at optimum, optimal mental health. One in five is, is really at optimal mental health. And nobody is at optimal health all the time. So when you, when you, when you think about, so, so that's where our mental health is at. And, and we don't give it the same sort of credence as we do our physical health. Why not? We should be. It should be absolutely, you know, hand in
0: glove, really. Do you think the tide is changing, Mark? Do you think that the past year has shown that we need to be putting more emphasis on mental health? Do you think that the announcement by the health minister was an important step forward? Where do you think we're at? Because I think whilst, again, like I certainly feel like within certain circles of my personal exposure to this, there's there's some, you know, there's like in terms of me being quite open and honest about my experiences and struggles has actually paved the way for people within my immediate circle of friends to be like, oh, I didn't realize you had that going on. We can have a chat about that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Look, I think it's shifting. And I think finally we're reaching a point where or we're heading towards a point where we can see the person as more than the issue that 's why i don 't like diagnoses. I, I understand why they 're necessary because we need to you know uh, deliver treatment programs and stuff but but Rob is much more than his depression. Mark is much more than his anxiety mm. but you know and and somebody with a, a a homeless person with a substance use issue is much more than just a homeless person with a drug habit. You know what i mean there 's a thousand other parts to each of us that that we lose. Um, when, when it's a bit sort of abstract, but when, when we're in a workplace or in a family or in a, in a sort of some kind of a social gathering and it's somebody we know that's struggling, the message kind of lands a little bit that, oh, wow. Okay. But they're still able to function in some way or they need some help, but they're more than the diagnosis or they're more than their condition. And to, to reduce the sort of level of stigma, uh, and I think so much of this belongs in the workplace because we spend so much time there and it's, so, it's such a figural part of our lives, that one of the best uh, methods of combating that stigma and stereotyping and discrimination that people experience is what they call contact-based uh, strategies. In other words, the leaders of the business talking about either their own struggles and issues with mental health or somebody really close to them, thereby delivering the message that it's perfectly normal, and if I can talk about it, so can you. And, you know, your, your job isn't in jeopardy because, you know, you're struggling. I mean, a lot of people can be high-functioning. Even, even in, with, you know, with serious depression, they can be high-functioning. It doesn't mean it will affect everybody's job. Sometimes some people need a bit of help to get over it for a while. But but by and large, the best way to combat it is to get it out there, have a conversation, talk about it. Um, let's not be afraid of it. You know, uh, the like the, the thought of, of suicide scares the bejesus out of most people. And it's really not that difficult a conversation to have. And sometimes you might be the only person who's ever actually asked somebody you know, do you have a plan or have you thought about taking your own life? Two questions. They're the two questions that all anybody has to ask in order to start the conversation and make somebody feel safe enough to continue it, you know?
0: It's crazy how that question has been completely demonized, isn't it? Like we're almost yeah. not allowed to ask it. For, yeah, And why not? What, uh, because that shows you care?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the assumption is if somebody is suicidal, just as an example, uh, well, they must already be in the healthcare system. They've got a GP or a psychiatrist or they've got a mental health team or they've plans or whatever. Mm. But that, actually, that's not the case. About half, a little over half, I think, of all uh, attempts or incomplete suicides never get reported on either side of the event. So that's that's a ton of silent suffering. Like you were saying, mm. you know, we've got one of the highest rates per capita in the world. Um and we do, um, but for every uh, sort of attempt at a suicide, there's probably I don't know eight, ten, twelve attempts. You know, for every for every completed suicide, we'll say, and if, if half of those never get reported, that's a whole lot of suffering. Mm. You know, um, and and you were saying, uh, you know, so what what are we doing? What more can we do? Um, Yes, the health minister announced that there's a big shake-up and Victoria as well just announced there's a big shake-up in their sort of response to mental health. Uh, And I think there's a load we can do and a lot more we have to do. Um, Just to give you an idea, and the overall um, scheme of things, just the health uh, sort of expenditure, we'll say, in this country – about 30% of it is spent on the last six months of people's lives. So that's quite, you know, that's quite an expense. I'm, no, I'm not saying for a second that we shouldn't be spending it. Absolutely, we should. And, a, and there's large numbers, like 60% of the uh, health budget is spent on chronic care of issues. We spend, in prevention, we spend 1.34% of the health budget not even one and a half percent. And that's about the third to a half of comparable countries like the UK, Canada, um, uh, some European countries, even the US. I think spends more than we do, uh, which, and, and we know that if you spend a dollar in that space, you're saving $9 at the other end. So, yeah, you know, right. I'm not saying for a second, we should be not spending the money. the money we're spending in chronic and, and acute healthcare and end of life care. It, we're spending it because it needs to be spent. It's not like, you know, we're not, we're not splashing it around or treating people who don't need treatment. Of course, all of that needs to continue. But we need to start looking at prevention and early intervention if we're going to uh, sort of make inroads and and uh, try to resolve people's problems before they become overwhelming. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, before you even start to then measure all of the other different sort of ancillary parts of, of, or even the economy around, you know, dealing with people's issues after they've become overwhelming, there's such a solid message to be made for, for getting out in front, getting in front of these issues sooner rather than later. And it's the exact same for a business and for a community and for, you know, as I said, any kind of a community leader to be able to have those conversations. Um, 1.34% is a very, very small amount. And out of that health budget, about 2% is spent on mental health, which is oh, nothing, right? Um, when you look at, if you look at, uh, and how they measure actually effectiveness of, of um, expenditure is, and, and uh, the issues, we, we measure uh, the burden of life the burden of disease and how many life years it actually takes. So it's a, it's a formula. But, but the burden of disease, uh, if you look at mental health and include things like uh, substance use, which are directly related to it, it represents about 20% of the burden of disease in this country, yet we spend about 2% on the treatment of it. So, we're, yes, we are spending money. We could probably spend it better, um, in in the early stages, and thereby reducing some of the desi- some of the need at the other end. You know, I'm not an economist, but but that's the, those sums don't stack up for me. You know, um, if all of us needing reading glasses, but we're only spending 1.2 <laughs> percent of the budget on the people who who are going to need reading glasses, uh, something's gonna something's got to give. We we've, yeah. we've just got to get better at it. You know, and and we have to agitate, I think, for it.
0: I think so. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's I think it's, it's a fight. Yeah. It's conversations Sorry. like this that will hopefully encourage that. And it's continuing to, whether it be in our personal or professional lives, to continue to make sure that they just become second nature conversations of this nature, you know? Like
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I look, I think so. Yeah. the more we talk about it, the easier it becomes, you know. Um and, and for anybody who's listening into this podcast, uh, nobody expects you to have the answers. If you do ask somebody, uh, if they're traveling okay and, uh, you think they might need some help, don't for a moment think that they're gonna just gonna latch onto you and know you, you know, you've created, you've opened this Pandora's box and you don't know how you're going to sort of deal with it and it's you know it's now going to become your problem, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. None of that is true. That doesn't actually happen. Um but you can make somebody's life infinitely easier just by asking if they are if they are in need of some level of support. How can we help? What what you know what can I do? I'm sorry to hear you're going through it. I can't imagine what it's like, you know or actually you know I can because I'm I'm living it myself. You know that could be the answer, but um, but we need to we need to uh, just broaden the conversation, normalize it, destigmatize it, and and make it okay. Like like Brené Brown said, there's a huge strength in vulnerability, um, and if used wisely, being vulnerable actually connects you to other people. You know, if you just start telling everybody, then you're just dumping, and you probably won't get the response you're looking for. But if you allow yourself to take the chance and approach the people that you think need to know or could help you, um, do it.
0: Yeah. I think this is the first time on the podcast that I've ever had to not frame up the question, my summary question of how do we facilitate courageous conversations. It's nice that it just naturally ebbed and flowed into that.
1: It's just,
0: know, yeah, it just came to us, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. I love it. You know, yeah, it's usually how I wrap things up, but uh we right. there in the end. Um <laughs> I wonder before we before we do say uh sayonara, you did mention, mm. you know, like your your struggles when you were younger. Yeah. And I wonder if how much of, of that played a part in the career path that you took. And all oh, massive. Do 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 those struggles still crop up now? And what are your techniques for dealing with them? Mm-hmm. Or are they much the yeah. same? Much of what we talked about.
1: Um, for me, um, I used to uh, have. So it started kind of at the age of uh, ten or eleven, something like that. Um, I was quite sick as a young kid and and kind of lived in fear of dying and stuff like that and nobody could tell me I wasn't going to I was in the hospital for extended periods etc um, and it was actually diagnosed as depression because back then 11 year old kids didn't have anxiety that was a kind of you know that was a housewife issue you know what I mean um, and and nobody would have assumed even for me And and there was no kind of medications or anything at that time but um, so I, I kind of largely just got through it myself, really, just kind of rode the, the, the wave. Um, and then about every decade or so, uh, a, a serious enough issue that would require medication and some therapy would, would raise its head. Um, and it was all if I was to sort of make a connection between them all, it's probably something around um, the vulnerability of not being accepted in some way, shape or form. Oh, and we okay. all need to belong, right? That's that's it's mm. a fundamental issue. If we don't, and like it's 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 instinctive in us. If we don't form part of a tribe or a collective in some way, then you're you're out on your own, and your chances of survival are minimalized, right? Um, so so we all have that fear of of not fitting in, not belonging, not connecting in some way, shape, or form, which is why you know the, this idea of loneliness. In, in our society terrifies me because I think it's it's hugely prevalent and way more than it has been before. But but for me, so, so my journey was was around that. And because I was diagnosed with depression when I was uh, much younger, that was kind of, they said, oh, you're depressed again. So here's, take these tablets and, mm-hmm. and, you know, go talk to a psychologist. Which I did. There's a lucky, there's a happy coincidence that more often than not, um, the treatment for depression and anxiety in terms of medication is actually the same because the symptoms are so similar, mm. the treatments are so similar. So, you know, it worked by accident kind of thing, right? Uh, but but knowing what I know now, I realized that what I was struggling with was anxiety, was crippling anxiety and OCD issues and ruminating issues, Um and And if you have anxiety like that for for long enough you will develop if you, if it's not dealt with, you will develop a secondary condition. There's no doubt Well, about half of half of the people with anxiety will develop depression just from the exhaustion of trying to deal with it mm-hmm. and not getting ahead and and you know it's just life's too hard and people with with depression you will quite often develop a secondary condition, whether it's anxiety or it's substance use or just as a way to cope um uh so so anyway that's what was going on for me and um uh now i i know what to look for it it Mm -hmm. was what prompted me to to explore uh studying and 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 i kind of followed my nose then and ended up with a couple of masters and a a bunch of other sort of qualifications uh with no real there was no sort of career plan or anything like that it was just ultimately fascinating and i was volunteering in society and supporting people in that way for years before it became my career um again as i say you know tired of being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and needed to get yeah, up to yeah. the top of the cliff to stop it happening that's that's been my motivator but but in terms of how do i prevent it now look i'm i'm much better able to spot it when i think it's coming Uh, I have a hugely supportive partner. Uh, Mary is really good. uh, If I did need to sort of sit and talk things through or just say, I'm having a shit day, this is a tough one. Mm. Um, And then um, besides that, I think, you know, we all have an idea of what we need to do in terms of our well-being. Sleep, diet, exercise, well-being, mindset, you know what I mean? And and I do keep an eye on those. Uh, Sometimes I don't. But um yeah, yeah, but you know when I'm when I when I'm feeling something coming up, I really do tend to switch into self care mode. Yeah. And self compassion mode. Yeah, yeah. self compassion mode. We have to be we you know, it's okay to be shit sometimes. This is shit, life is shit, I'm feeling shit, you know, and I'm gonna care for myself some way today. You know? I think um, that and, once you once yeah.
0: you've been on that kind of experience and that roller coaster and knowing yeah. that whatever happens when you're down here and you're at the bottom of the the roller coaster, you know, you're just looking at the top thinking, Oh shit, that's a long way up. Never going to get there. You just like, if you've gone through it and know that you can come out the other side, it makes the process so much easier when it happens again. Like I find myself doing that all the time. Like it's as tough as it is in the moment, having those self coaching moments of just, it, it is what it is. Wait it out you'll be okay. And, and, and just believing your, you know, believing your rhetoric.
1: Yeah. Or, or reach out to somebody who understands or reach out to somebody who cares, you know? Um, I, I, I and I think that's, what's not, that's what, what isn't happening enough, mm. you know? Cause like when you're in that place every day, feels like a month. I was terrified of going to sleep. I couldn't, I couldn't face going to sleep when I was at my worst. So I had to just knock myself out with booze and pills and whatnot. Just, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, Because the idea of lying in bed and trying to get to sleep was so utterly terrifying. Um, Yeah. So every day feels like a month when you're in that space, you know? And, you know, I mean, uh, people who are struggling with suicide, there's, uh, i 'm I'm just mind i don't want to take up all your your day, but there was there was some brilliant uh, a trial happened in austin Texas just recently where the the nine one one number you know you ring is it police fire or, or uh, paramedics you're looking for they added mental health to it just to see they wanted a trial so is it a police fire um, paramedics or is it a mental health uh, person you want to speak to, and they found that people were saying, "Oh yeah, mental health, please, um, and so they get put through to somebody uh, in the mental health space who was like a triage person who could sort of talk to them and see where they're at, kind of lifeline if you like right yeah, yeah, and yeah. and recommend next move and what they found as a result of that that about eighty five percent of the calls didn 't need a police response, which is what would normally happen mm-hmm. when you' bring police fire ambulance you know, oh police, somebody's suicidal or they're having a psychotic episode. Police would arrive and, and, and that doesn't always end well, as we know. Um, but they found they massively reduced the need for police presence when it came to that, and and they were able to resolve, at least in some way in the in the short term, that person's issue. And I think um I think the idea of a triple digit number here in Australia for for uh, Lifeline or similar services, because there's, there's more than Lifeline that do that. There's some brilliant services there. But if you were to dial 777, we'll say, and get through to one of those, instead of, you know, I'm at the end of the line and I'm really thinking of suicide, but I need to go up and look, out, look up a 1300 number or a 1300 number yeah. or try and remember a six or a 10-digit number when I'm really at my lowest ebb. You know, I think we could. I think it would be a brilliant thing. I would love to see it happen here. I think
0: that just the you know piggybacking on the back of an already recognised number is such an inspired idea. So easy, yeah. it's just so simple. Yeah. You're like, why are we not
1: doing it? Why? Yeah. Why not? Can you imagine ringing triple O and getting you know police, fire, ambulance, or mental health? Well, like you say,
0: it's it's already a uh, a conditioned habit of people. And to have that additional service just makes perfect sense to me. Um,
1: yeah, I thought it was genius. But it's people
0: like yourself, Mark, who are out there, you know, having conversations <laughs> yeah. with you know the big the big dogs at uh, various companies, and you know, in front of people with influence that will will allow to even just sow that seed, you know. And I think that's really important.
1: Just get the conversation started, you know, that's if it. we can. I'm pushing my barrow as much as I can, <laughs> and Robert's people. It's people like you. Who were then um, you know trumpeting it for us and uh, having conversations with people just like you and me uh, who are quite comfortable saying you're not alone and uh, and you know uh, you don't have to do it the hard way
0: yeah, you don't you have know? to start a podcast.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't even have to start a podcast <laughs> that's true, it's so true uh, yeah, yeah, it really is,
0: it really is well mark firstly thank you ever so much for being so open so honest so candid um wonderful insights they've given me a whole bunch of reading materials as well to go off and have a look at so thank you and a quote that i'm probably going to steal as well so thank Which you ever so it? much for that uh oh, better to be
1: the uh oh, the top. fence around the top of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley that's yeah it. that's it fantastic that's rob thank you and thank you for all that you do as well
0: Well, uh, what started as a very, 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 very selfish endeavour, which was to channel my creativity into something that would ultimately make my mental health better, has now turned into something that I I couldn't have possibly been prepared for how well it's been received. And now it's very much about the the feedback and and what it does for other people so it's brilliant it's an absolute pleasure mark getting to talk to people like yourself um who are experts in the space because yeah it just helps either reinforce um helps to enhance you know the the information and the conversations that yeah. i'm having with people so thank you ever so much i really appreciate it Good.
1: thank you too cheers rob i let you get
0: back to your monday sir okay sir thank you very much all the best mark take care
1: Talk to you soon. Cheers, Rob. Bye.
0: Bye. Break out the maracas, pull up a log, and bask in the warm embers of the campfire glow. That's it for another week. The weekly wrap, as always, starts with my enormous thanks to my guest. Your insights were a truly wonderful, Mark, and I can't thank you enough for your time and wisdom. I like to have people on that are seasoned veterans in the mental health space. Sometimes it's easy for me to get lost in the narrative of courageous conversations, but talking to Mark also provided some bigger picture stimulus and fundamentally reminded me that we're not alone in this. We're all going through something, and what that looks like is a sliding scale. But through normalising chats about mental health and dealing with it, the closer we can get to a much happier and healthier society. As is always the case, if you enjoyed this chat and would like to explore avenues of further support, please visit gocampfire.co forward slash support for lots of delicious links to help you achieve your very best mental health. Don't forget, you can show your love for what we're trying to do here at Campfire HQ by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, following on Spotify or joining the conversation on Instagram at GoCampfire. The more we hear from you, the more you share, the better we'll be able to get this content into the hands of men that need it most. Finally, if you'd like to connect with me, hit me up via Instagram at ASAPBobby or via the Campfire Socials. Links, as always, are in the podcast description. Well, my friends, I've just seen the bat signal in the sky, so I'm off on my next super secret courageous caper. But until next time. Happy and healthy, my dudes.